I'm sure most of you have heard the adage, never discuss politics or religion in polite company. With the increasing political polarization in our culture, it seems like more people have become emboldened to make their political convictions known, even in polite company. Uh, Politics has become increasingly uh, more and more permeated throughout our lives. Uh, Businesses feel pressure to signal their political views to their stakeholders, to their employees, to their customers. Uh, Celebrities are vocal about their political opinions and convictions. News shows focus exclusively on what political figures are saying and doing. And more than that, every issue in our culture has become a political issue. It's nearly impossible to abide by the rule of etiquette to never discuss politics in polite company when everything has become politics. This is hardly surprising when you sit back and think about it. Um, This is, you know, you think about the um, decline of religious belief, so-called religious belief, in the West. As people have given up belief in God, they haven't stopped being religious creatures made in His image. They've only replaced their belief in God with a hope and trust in politics. They still desire deliverance. They still desire to be saved. They desire for a Savior. They hope for one. They still long for transcendence, something bigger than they are. They still want to have hope, but they are seeking it in all the wrong places. For many, politics has replaced religion. If politics now gets a pass on this rule about what is appropriate for polite company, what about religion? Have Christians become more emboldened to discuss their faith with their neighbors? This morning, Peter has a word to the church about what to do when our neighbors are looking for hope. What do you say when someone asks you about your outlook on things? Has the church also reduced all the important matters in our conversations to earthly politics? Last week, we looked at Peter's instructions to the whole church to walk in humility and love toward one another, to display the character of Christ in our relationships within the church. Uh, He listed out these five characteristics as having unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. These are to characterize the people of God. And we also saw Peter's instruction to display the character of Christ in our dealings with our enemies toward outsiders who mistreat us. When our enemies revile us or slander us or do evil to us while we are out doing good in the world, we're not to revile or to do evil in return. But instead, the Lord calls us to bless our enemies, to pray for our enemies, and to overcome evil with good. We saw the promise of God's blessing that is declared to us in Psalm 34, which Peter quotes. It says, the Lord's eyes and ears are toward the righteous. The Lord who is on the throne has his face turned toward the righteous. He hears their cries. He's ready to act. And we are assured that we will receive his blessing. Uh, We will see 
good days. We will love life when we walk in his ways. Now Peter continues this teaching to the whole church. This is still under that section of finally all of you. Uh, And he continues that teaching by talking about our witness to those who do not yet hope in Christ. When we live as the transformed people of God, when we return blessing for evil done to us, people start to ask questions. They start to notice that we're not like them or other people that they know. They expect us to hit back, to retaliate, to continue the vicious cycle of evil. And when you don't, when we bless instead, people get curious. People want to know what motivates us. They start asking questions. They want to know, what do you have that is different? They want to know what is behind your honorable conduct. Because we have been delivered from the ways of darkness, what Peter calls the passions of our former ignorance, and we've been brought into God's marvelous light, our lives begin to reflect that light. And people want to know what that is all about. So he sets up his instruction in our passage under a general command. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. This morning, I want us to consider what it means to sanctify or set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts and how that overflows in what we speak to the world and how it manifests itself in our way of life, in our conduct. So we could sum up these three ideas under the headings of consecration, confession, and conduct. Peter exhorts us to a consecration, a confession, and a certain kind of conduct. Let's look at that exhortation to consecrate Christ as Lord in your hearts. He says in verse 13, now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Okay, in this consecration, there's a trust in God's promise, a turning from fear, and a turning toward Christ the Lord. First, there's a trust in God's promise. Peter starts here by talking about having a zeal, being zealous for what is good. He already laid out the various details for how Christians are to go about doing good in their everyday lives through the civil sphere, submitting to magistrates, even pagan ones, in the economic sphere, submitting to masters, even unjust ones, in the household sphere, wives submitting to their husbands, even unbelieving ones, and husbands showing honor and understanding to their wives. And then in how the church takes care of her own, how we are to love one another in the body of Christ. We're to be zealous in doing good in every area of life. And this is how we manifest the light of the gospel in a dark world. And who is there to harm you for doing good, Peter says. He seems to be optimistic about how people will respond when we are busy doing good in our everyday lives. If we're enthusiastic about doing good, devoted to it in all our interactions with both unbelievers and believers, who will be out to get you? Is there really anyone who is going to harm you 
if you are eager for doing good? The rhetorical force of this question is to answer no. Uh, No one. There will be no one to harm you if you are doing good. If you seek to bless those around you and do good to them, you're a good neighbor, you're a hardworking employee, you're a benefit to your community, who will be out to get you? You should expect praise, not persecution. As we saw last week, this is the expectation of Psalm 34 at a general level, at a proverbial level. If you want to see good days and love life, walk in the Lord's ways. Keep your tongues from evil. Uh, Keep yourself from deceit. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Those who do these things will be blessed. And proverbially, this does tend to be true at a general level. But as we also saw last week, Peter knows that we have real enemies. The church has real enemies. There are those who will revile you and do evil to you. They'll slander you for doing what is right and good because they're envious of you, uh, because they're like Cain who hated his brother, just as they did this to Jesus. Okay, we're no greater than our master, as the Lord said in our gospel lesson. That's why Peter goes on to say here, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Even in the worst case scenario, when someone does want to harm you, the Lord is still going to bless you for walking in his ways. And this means his blessing runs deeper than a trouble-free life. His promises still stand in that scenario of persecution. So Peter is saying, though we might not expect it, even if they do harm you, they can't ultimately harm you. It's like Paul saying, if God is for us, who can be against us? Well, Paul, there are a lot of people who seem to be against you and out to get you. But Paul says it doesn't matter. They're no match for the Lord. If God is for you, there is no enemy who can ultimately stand in your way. Even if you are persecuted, that doesn't stop the Lord from blessing you, from keeping his promises. The blessed life is not equivalent to the trouble-free life. Ultimate harm and ultimate blessing are in the hands of the Lord. As, as Luther wrote, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. So this consecration includes a trust in that promise, a trust in God's promise to bless us. It also includes a turning from fear. Hey, Peter says, do not fear. Do not fear what they fear. Peter here begins a quotation from Isaiah 8, uh, which was our Old Testament lesson today. In Isaiah, the prophet is exhorting his brothers not to fear what their opponents fear. God's people are under the threat of being overtaken by a foreign power. Many of their own leaders are compromising. They're making coalitions with other enemies because they're afraid. They're terrified of being taken over. And Isaiah says this. He says, For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. Peter applies these words from Isaiah to his first century Christian audience when they're under threat of those who would persecute them for doing good. He says, have no fear of them. 
don't be troubled. Or we could render this just as Isaiah says, do not fear what they fear. We are not to fear the things that the world fears. What does the world fear? They fear losing the approval of others. They fear being rejected by others. They care very much about what other people think about them. They fear getting hurt or losing their wealth, losing their livelihood. They fear pain. They fear death. Do not fear what they fear. Do not fear what your enemies can do to you. Or as Jesus says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Why do they fear these things? They fear losing approval, wealth, or health because these things are ultimate to them. Having the approval of others is of utmost importance to them. Having material wealth is essential to their happiness. Physical pleasure or a life of ease is ultimate. Having good health or avoiding pain and death is everything to them. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. What you love and revere most will be the thing you fear losing the most. Your happiness is tied to what you value above all. Peter says, don't fixate on the fears of the world, but fix your eyes on the Lord. Trust in Christ. So this, con- this consecration includes a turning from fear and a turning toward Christ. Set apart Christ as Lord in your heart, and he will become a sanctuary for you. Isaiah 8 goes on. He says, do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread, but the Lord of hosts, Yahweh of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread, and he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken." Remarkably, Peter takes Isaiah's words to fear the Lord of hosts, fear Yahweh of hosts, above all, to honor him as holy, and he applies them to Christ. He applies them to Jesus. Do not fear what they fear, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Like the other apostles throughout the New Testament, Peter takes an Old Testament text concerning Yahweh, the Lord, and he identifies it with Jesus, the Lord. Christ is the Lord. He is to be honored as the Lord of hosts, as holy. And that's because the Son and the Father are one. Christ and the God of Israel are one. Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh. And he's been given the name that is above every name. Do not fear what they fear. Rather, honor Christ as Lord in your hearts. Let him be your dread. Submit to the Lord who is in control of all things, the Lord over all things. Put your hope in him and you will not be put to shame. Notice too that Isaiah 8 is one of the stone passages that we looked at earlier when we were in chapter 2. Peter talks about Christ as the living stone who's chosen and precious in the sight of God. That those who are joined to him are being made into God's new temple. That we all become living stones when we're joined to Christ, the cornerstone. 
And all who put their hope and their trust in him will not be put to shame. That's the promise. Peter's picking up on one of those same texts here to bring a similar point home. Those who hope in Christ shall not be put to shame. When we set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts, we fear him above all. We revere and honor him, giving him his rightful place, his proper due. We fear him and no other. We could do this because we have the promise that whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. This is a treasure worth banking on. This is a field that is worth selling everything and buying because there is priceless treasure there. This is a treasure that will last. This is the treasure that we should tie all our happiness to. An inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Christ trumps all other things that we could hope in. Do not place your hope in the approval of others. Do not fear their rejection of you when you seek to honor the Lord in your life. In the face of persecution or slander, we must not fear our enemies or the things that they fear. Rather, we must consecrate Christ as Lord in our hearts. And when we honor Christ as Lord in our hearts, it gives us a spiritual backbone that our enemies don't know what to do with. We can face ridicule and rejection because we desire his praise and approval more than anything else. Like Paul, we can say to live is Christ and to die is gain because we do not place our ultimate hope in this life. Augustine says, if you love the good, you will suffer no loss because whatever you may be deprived of in this world, you will never lose God who is the true good. Christ is Lord and King over all. He's been given authority and dominion over all things. And this is true whether you acknowledge it or not. But Peter calls us to believe it in our hearts, to consecrate Christ as Lord in our hearts, to submit to this reality in our minds at our very core. We are to hallow the name of Christ and give him the honor and position that is due him in our lives. So consecrate Christ as Lord in your hearts. But Peter doesn't stop there. It's not enough to simply believe this in your heart as if you can keep this private to yourself, as if what happens inwardly can just stay there. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. When you honor Christ as Lord in your heart, it transforms all of you. When we consecrate Christ as Lord in our hearts, this should give rise to confession on our lips. Verse 15, Peter says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Okay, Peter expects outsiders to start asking questions when they see this kind of consecration in your heart start to manifest itself. Our confession includes at least three things here, a defense to anyone, a reason for our hope, and a preparation for this opportunity. First, we're called to make a defense to anyone. This word defense, apologian, is where we get the term apologetics. Not an apology in the sense of saying I'm sorry, but a defense of the faith. That's what apologetics is. Often this is associated uh, with complex philosophical arguments for the Christian faith. 
uh, questions like the existence of God, uh, the problem of evil, and other formal academic defenses of Christian belief. And while those exercises are legitimate and even a legitimate application of this passage, I don't think this is what Peter has in mind primarily when he says, finally, all of you. Okay, he has in mind uh, a number of situations potentially. It might be uh, a courtroom defense. Okay, this, use, this word is used in a number of kind of courtroom settings uh, in the first century uh, where Christians might have to give a defense of their faith when they're on trial. Similar, similar to what Jesus was discussing in Matthew 10 when he tells them they'll be dragged before kings and before governors. Um, think about Paul standing before King Agrippa in the book of Acts. We're told that Paul gave his defense, the same word there. Peter may have in mind giving a defense to persecutors who attack or slander Christians only to have these Christians respond by doing good, by blessing them. When you suffer for righteousness' sake and then respond by blessing your enemy, questions are asked. In some cases, this will prompt an occasion for a defense, a defense for your behavior. Think of the episode in Acts 16 where Paul and Silas are put into prison and they're just singing hymns. They're just celebrating, singing hymns to the Lord. And this great earthquake erupts and all the jail cells are broken And the jailer goes to reach for his sword to kill himself, okay? He knows what his fate will be um, if all these prisoners are loose, and he's the one responsible. This happened on his watch. Paul and Silas call him off, and they say, hey, we're still here. Don't, Don't hurt yourself. They were doing good to this jailer by not running off, and he was not expecting it. He then falls down in fear and trembling and asks them, What must I do to be saved? Peter may have these kinds of examples in mind, but he tells us to be prepared to give a defense to anyone who asks. This general way of putting it does not limit his instruction to courtrooms or to persecutors. As we consecrate Christ as Lord in our hearts, this devotion should spill over into a confession of Christ as Lord to our neighbors. We are to be prepared to make a defense of our hope to anyone. This includes our family, our friends, our coworkers, uh, people we come across in daily lives. When your barber or your mechanic is going on about how terrible things are in our country right now, how hopeless our culture seems, does the conversation end in pessimism and longing for the good old days? Or are you prepared to make a defense for the hope that is in you. When your peers wonder why you're not joining in with them in their debauchery and their immoral living, are you prepared to make a defense for the hope that is within you? Lest we think this, is a, this defense should be defensive, prickly or crabby, Peter tells us we're to make a defense in a way that is gentle or mild, that is humble. We aren't seeking to puff ourselves up or harshly respond to those we are in conversation with, but we're to speak having the fear of Christ and having a gentle tongue. We're called to make a defense to anyone. Our confession also includes a reason for the hope that is in us. There are reasons for our hope. Uh, There is content to this defense. Uh, People are asking for an explanation 
for, for our hopeful living? What is the reason for the hope that we have within us? Paul, in his defense before King Agrippa, declared the hope is nothing less than the promise God made to his fathers, the people of Israel, the hope of the resurrection, the living hope that Peter talks about in chapter 1. Paul says, so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. The hope is that through the death and resurrection of Christ, God has trampled down sin and death and has forgiven us uh, our sins and given us new life. He's given us assurance of an imperishable, undefiled, and unfading inheritance. Our hope is what Peter calls the salvation of our souls, okay? our complete and total salvation, the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter says, set your hope fully on that. We will be raised with him and live forever with him. We have a heavenly father who is good and who is for us because of Jesus. His eyes and his ears are toward us, ready to bless us. He will vindicate us and raise us from the dead on the last day. That is the living hope. That is our hope. Notice that it's a reason for our hope and not our faith. He doesn't say give reasons for your faith. He says the reason for the hope that is within you. Hope is faith, but it's faith oriented toward the future. It's our joyful expectation of what is to come. We aren't pessimistic about the future. We aren't motivated by the fears the world has. Everything only goes up from here, okay? We do not fear what they fear. Christ is our fear, and because we hope in him, we will not be put to shame. We have a joyful expectation concerning the things to come. And although our hope is future-oriented, it changes us here and now, okay? It's not just waiting for the future, but when we hope in what is to come, it begins to change us here and now. John says, everyone who hopes in Christ purifies himself as he is pure. Okay, we begin to purify ourselves through the work of the Holy Spirit as we set our hope on this ultimate reality. The confidence that we have in the Lord's deliverance changes us. It changes the way we live and the way we speak. This is the reason for the hope that is within us. Our confession includes a defense to anyone a reason for our hope, and it includes a preparation for the opportunity. Okay, Peter says we need to be prepared. Be prepared to make this defense to anyone. Always ready to speak. We do not know what opportunities the Lord will bring to us, but we know that we need to be prepared. We prepare now for unforeseen opportunities. Think about what you might say. Okay, think about uh, how you might defend the hope that is within you when the opportunity arises. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew chapter 10 not to be anxious about what they might say when they are bearing witness before Gentiles. He says the Spirit will give you what to say in that hour. Now, does that contradict what Peter says here about being prepared? I don't think so. 
Think about this. The disciples had spent every waking moment with Jesus for three years. They had been preparing and learning from Jesus throughout his ministry, paying attention to his words. They were his closest friends and disciples. And he's promising them in Matthew 10 to bring these words to mind on that day. Don't be anxious about it. They didn't have to worry about the outcome of these opportunities. We need to prepare. We need to know the word of Christ. Paul says to let the word of Christ dwell richly within us and think about our hope and think about how to communicate it. But then we need to trust the Lord to do with it what he wills. We don't control the outcome. We can only be faithful to prepare and to speak when the opportunity comes. Knowing the word doesn't mean that you need to be a PhD in theology or a PhD in apologetics to make a defense. Peter gives this command to all Christians. Remember, finally, all of you, this command belongs under that heading. Right now, your defense may be like the blind man in John 9 who says, look, all I know is that I was blind and now I see. Jesus saved me from the path to death that I was headed down and now I have life and I know he is saving me. It can be as simple as that. We don't have to make this complicated. But we do need to be prepared and we need to be bold to speak when the opportunity arises. Now, we should stop for a moment and think about who it is that is giving us these instructions. Okay, this is Peter. This is Simon Peter who is telling us, don't fear, don't be afraid, be ready when anyone asks you to make a defense for the hope that is within you. Okay, remember Peter's life history. This is the same Peter who is sitting outside of a courtyard on the night that Jesus was betrayed, on the night of his arrest, and a little servant girl comes up to him and says, you too were with Jesus, the Galilean. Okay, here's an opportunity. At this opportunity, Peter says, I don't know what you mean. Okay, moments later, another servant girl comes up and says the same thing. This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. Peter denies it this time with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, a third group comes and declares that this guy definitely belonged with Jesus. They've got the same accent. And this time Peter invokes a curse upon himself. And he swears, I do not know the man. As the rooster crowed, Peter remembered the word of Christ and wept. Though Peter failed miserably, these three times, the Lord was not done with him. Jesus, after his resurrection, restored Peter. He asked him three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And at Peter's renewed profession, of course, Lord, the Lord responds, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Peter repented and took up Christ's command to feed the sheep, which is what he's doing here. The book of Acts details Peter's bold proclamation before all that Christ is Lord. I say all that to say that if you failed in this area, there is hope. Turn to the Lord. Be renewed. Honor Christ as Lord in your heart and on your lips. Be bold to proclaim the hope that is within you. Jesus said, whoever acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. 
But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Consecrating Christ in our hearts should spill over into this kind of confession to our neighbors, but it should also be manifested in our conduct, in our way of life. This last point briefly here. He says in verse 16, having a good conscience, okay, make a defense of the faith, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Peter teaches us that our lives must line up with what we confess with our lips. Our good behavior in Christ is to be a testimony to Christ's deliverance of us from darkness into light. A transformed life is a testimony to the hope that is within you. Are you living in such a way that provokes such questions, that provides such opportunities? Does your life reflect a hopeful confidence in the Lord? When is the last time that someone asked you about the hope that is within you. If people at work found out that you're a Christian, would they be surprised? Does your conduct bolster your confession or does it contradict it? Does the way you speak and live line up with what you say about Jesus? Peter wants us to resist hypocrisy, to have a good conscience. Our lives should back up what we say about Christ. And when we do this, our revilers will be put to shame. Our conduct should line up with our confession. As we consecrate Christ as Lord in our hearts, we do so trusting in God's promise that he is a good father who blesses his children and gives good gifts. We can turn from fears and trust in Christ to be our sanctuary. He is the precious cornerstone, the precious treasure that we place all of our hope in. We know that we will not be put to shame if we put our hope in Him. So we do not need to be ashamed to tell our neighbors about Him. If we're not gonna be put to shame, why would we be ashamed to tell our neighbors? This consecration of Christ in our heart should spill over into confession as we have opportunity to give a reason for our hope to those around us. We should be prepared to boldly give a defense for our hope with gentleness and humility. Think about what you might say. Our conduct should line up with our confession as a testimony of who we say we are and what we believe about Christ the Lord. As Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, okay, if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, our faith is futile and we are still in our sins and we are of all people the most to be pitied. But since Christ has in fact been raised from the dead, we are no longer in our sins. And we of all people have true and living hope. Why would we keep that to ourselves? May God grant us boldness to share this hope with our neighbors who are in need of the living hope. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us continue to worship by giving of our tithes and offerings.